0: We'll go through the papers to begin, as we always do, and with me in studio, Conor O'Mahony, lecturer in constitutional law at UCC, Ralph Regal, correspondent with the Irish Independent, and Gina London, public affairs consultant and formerly of CNN. Good morning to you all. Morning, Jonathan. Good morning, morning, Jonathan. It is so cold. I mean, there are people listening to us who are under the duvet, and I think the consensus should be they should stay there. It's very Christmassy in the middle of November. Isn't it just? No, it was a particularly hard frost overnight. I had the engine on for 20 minutes, I don't know, but any of you, before it even got into the car, thought of getting into the car. Uh, we'll go through the front pages of the papers. The Sunday Independent. Secret warning on hard-left threat inside the unions. Taoiseach briefs Martin on militants in the public sector. Certainly a dramatic headline by Philip Ryan and Wayne O'Connor. Taoiseach and the Kennedy warned Michael Martin about the rise of hard-left agitators within public sector unions during a secret meeting not so secret anymore, says you, on the future of the Lansdowne Road Agreement. Kenny invited Martin to government buildings last week to privately discuss, discuss growing industrial unrest in the public sector in the wake of the Labour Court's decision to recommend a 50 million pay deal for Gardee. The meeting was arranged after Fida expressed serious concern at being left in the dark on the dispute as unions prepare to ballot members on industrial action. Uh, Al Porter. Big story about him on the Sunday Independent. A big profile piece by Neave Horn as well. Of course, he appeared on the cutting edge with Brendan O'Connor during the week, talking about his battle with depression and anxiety. And in the Indo this week, he's says it got so bad he would double over in physical pain. He said he was speaking out for the benefit of openness and authenticity but added it will be the only time he opens up about his struggle as he doesn't want his career to be defined by it. Uh, the Sunday Business Post Mansfield exclusive drugs, crime gangs, Garthy raids and me. I never laundered money. I don't know the Kinnahans. Priceless George Washington pistols linked to Mansfield raid is their front page story. They also uh, talk, uh, Susan Mitchell has a piece, Ireland in talks with EU group to bulk buy expensive drugs. Ireland is examining the option of teaming up with a European bloc that has started to negotiate collectively to lower drugs with to lower prices with drugs firms. Simon Harris, the health minister, believes the move could allow Ireland gain new leverage and economies of scale as it grapples with a deluge of pricey new medicines. Of course, that would help it with drugs like Orcambi and so on. That there have a. Big, big challenges in Solaris, which is another one. The HSE is paying 400 grand per patient per year of Solaris, which treats rare blood conditions. Sunday Times, um, uh, they went to town with their headline, Ireland Hackad to Pieces, <laughs> and a picture of the hacker, uh, which is the one they chose as opposed to any of the others they could have gone with. But they have a remarkable story on the front page um, by John Mooney, their crime correspondent. Guard the Commissioner, Noreen O'Sullivan has been using a private email account to send and receive official correspondence. Uh-oh. In apparent contravention of Garda regulations on communications security, a cloud storage account linked to O'Sullivan's private email account was amongst those compromised in 2012 when hackers attacked Dropbox stealing millions of usernames and passwords. It is unclear whether O'Sullivan was aware of the security breach which did not emerge until last August. O'Sullivan's username and password were included On a list of stolen data which had been posted on the internet by. Hackers is the story there, so that's going to be something that uh, the Commissioner is going to have to deal with. They also have a story about Colin Coyle on the front page. Uh, Zapone lobbied by her own charity. Catherine Zapone, the Minister for Children, has been lobbied for extra funding in a series of meetings by the Chief Executive of a charity she founded since she was appointed Minister for Children and Youth Affairs last year. I suppose that's going to happen, but the fact that we know about it, does that not mean the system works in some way? Uh, the Mail on Sunday, their front page pensions double whammy. Private sector taxpayers are set for a potential double whammy on pensions as the government draws its battle lines with unions over the controversial public sector pension levy. The government will oppose union demands for the abolition of the pension levy and full restoration of pay as the sides become increasingly divided in advance of pay talks expected in the new year. But it will be non-public sector workers, many of whom have seen their pension pots dive starkly into the red, who will foot the bill of whether a compromise is thrashed out. Which again is the battle lines being drawn between the public sector and the private sector and that is... uh, Look, that's a dichotomy that didn't get us anywhere before and it's probably not going to get us anywhere now, one would argue. And The Sunday World have um, a story on their front page. It's an exclusive by uh, Patrick O'Connell. It's Paul Kelly the man who ran the console charity Lost Soul is the headline console boss Kelly breaks his silence and says scandal left him feeling suicidal says he has lost everything as he sets up a new counselling for profit firm and insists not a cent of 736k charity credit card spree was for his own use so that is a good get and it seems like a reasonably meaty interview that uh, Patrick O'Connell did uh, with the man that everybody really has wanted to talk to over the course of the last while Uh, let's begin talking about public Pay because that that is something that's going to dominate the discussion for the next while. Ralph Regal. This secret meeting, which again is not that secret anymore, is this an attempt by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to show that they're on the same side? We know Fianna Fáil have been urging caution for the government this week, but uh, I would have thought that Fianna Fáil would be far more prone to redo a deal on Lansdowne Road than Fianna Gael would.
1: Uh, I think Fianna Fáil are playing a a long-term gain on the basis that we're probably looking at a general election, if not next year, well then certainly I think the year after. And Fianna Fáil are going to inherit the consequences of the next social arrangement in terms of wages. And I think there's some interesting elements in this. Number one, I think Fianna Gael see the consequences of the Garda pay deal, that we're looking at serious industrial unrest next year if there's not something done on the existing pay deal. And I think Fianna Fall don't want to unleash the hounds on Fina Gale, and then find those same hounds hunting them when they eventually take power, if they take power after the next general election. Yeah, and, and that, so it's going to be very much, I think, they'll they'll work together, but they'll also want to try and dampen down, I think, expectations. And it's
0: funny that fall are taking such a line, a strong line on this, really, Connor. Uh, You've you Derek Leary uh, in the Sunday. Times, Uh, trade unions seeking pay rises ahead of the Lansdowne Road timetable will have to identify how the increases can be funded without reducing services to the public. So if the unions thought they were going to get a sympathetic hearing Mm. from Fianna Fáil in government, they, they might have to stop and think again. Well, certainly if you take Dark Leary at his word in that regard, because the idea
2: that you can increase public pay without uh, some sort of impact in services uh, just doesn't wash, really. You know, it's inevitable, given everything we heard during the general election around the idea of fiscal space and how much money we possibly have to spend. Uh, and Stephen Kinsler has a very good article, I think it's in the Business Post today, talking about how that those figures might have to be reconsidered when you look at the, the effect on exports that's already beginning to, to be felt uh, post-Brexit and so on. Um, that in reality... If you are going to increase public pay, it is going to affect services. And so if that's a red line for Fianna Foy, if, you know, if they mean what they say in that regard, uh, then they won't be able to support any increases in pay, um, which, you know, will be will be interesting to see how, how that will, uh, you know, how that's going to impact on, on industrial uh, peace, because the unions
0: are taking an equally strong line on their side. Philip Ryan has a beautiful uh synopsis of it on page 21 in his analysis. The Lansdowne Road agreement is dead. It has expired. It is a deceased pay deal. The agreement is bereft of life. It is a former public sector pay deal. Now he apologises to (laughs) Monty Python but he's right. I mean two weeks ago Lansdowne Road died Uh, on the steps of the Labour Court. Because yeah. the Labour Court did a deal which they would have known even with the pressure that was on mm. them to produce something with the the strike looming, they would have known that mm. every other trade union was going to go and clamour
1: for it Yeah, them. and I think the government were taken aback according to one of the papers I think it was actually uh, in the Sunday Independent my own colleagues writing about it there that the Labour Court went far beyond what the government had expected that they would give the guardie. So I think the government are now looking at multiple claims for similar type of arrangements the money is not there to pay it if you're to maintain services. And then against the backdrop of that, I think the Sunday Business Post and another one of the papers there have led with the whole pensions issue. So you're looking at another huge uh, ask in terms of funding if... Public sector pensions are to be maintained, given the hit post Brexit.
0: Gina, as, as as an American watching this as an observer, you mm-hmm. must think we're all mad. I mean, there, there's no way that this kind of discussion would even be countenanced in the United States.
3: Oh, I think there's. I think we're not going to be talking about what can't and can't be discussed in the United States these days. I think there's a lot that we never <laughs> <laughs> expected that's happening. You've jumped, you've happening jumped that there. shark already. I think that all bets are off. But I mean, certainly we have a strong uh, history of labor and trade unions in the United States as well. What has been has been reduced over time because of the strong opposition in, in, in that to many degrees. And I think it'll be very important now that... The parrot is dead, so to speak, that there needs to be a real collective discussion with all the parts that Connor and, and Ralph are talking about. We've got to make sure you've got the public sector and the pensions and the private sector all coming together collectively to talk about what's the reality of the money going forward and not strike a deal that then is going to become null and void prematurely.
0: But the reality is that the money isn't there. I mean, Stephen Kinsler makes that point, Connor, that, that you know, nobody seems to be stopping and talking about how we're going to fund this pay restoration, the pensions levy coming back. Yes, they are aspirations that I think everybody would be in favour of public and mm. private sector that if the economy yeah. recovers to the correct degree we everybody mm. gets the money back but Stephen Kinsey says the numbers aren't there to just justify it and we've already spent half mm. of next year's budget on public sector pay already before we've considered anything mm. else
2: and it's, it seems to be and he makes the point that it's one of these cases of failing to learn from, from past mistakes you know that uh, there's this boom and bust cycle that everybody talked about it after the, the crash in 2008 that we had to bring an end to that cycle and not go down that road again Uh, but yes we seem to be you know beginning on the on the on that road very much um, so, you know, I think the idea of pay restoration, you see, it's a neat catchphrase for public sector unions. The idea, you know, you took this office and all we want is, is for you to give us the money back that you, that you took office previously. And that sounds nice. It's an easy sell compared to just saying we want to pay rise. You know, it doesn't sound as bad to say we want it restored. Uh, the question is whether or not we can afford to take it back to 2008, 2008 levels. And but the, but even that aside, and, and
0: something that came out during the week when we were discussing this and I was talking on the Pat Kenny programme about this, is, is that there are many in the public and civil service who would much prefer to see the three people in their office who ended up leaving and not being replaced, yes, yeah. something being done to tackle that service. And yep. again, while public sector workers, and you're welcome to text in 53106, you couldn't do it during the week because you're working, but I know you're off this morning. So if you want to contribute the to the... Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, if I'm sure they have very strong opinions on it anyway. So do text in to 53106. That... The, we should be talking more about services, and mm-hmm. we should be talking more about the type of public service we want, rather than just this them and us approach, mm-hmm. w- which is coming out.
3: I well, absolutely, and I think that's part of the whole idea, and Connor touched on it too, is managing the expectations and managing the messaging around the reality of the situation about what it costs to provide certain services, and try to find if there's a way. Maybe it's not just money, euros, dollars, that the the unions are looking for, that these public sector employees are looking for, what are some other opportunities to provide well-being and a sense of value within the workplace that could compensate for raw numbers in a time as you may or may not be able to get to 2008? Yeah, but the problem is it's
0: never that discussion,
1: though, is it? Well, then then that's – well, why not? It's not, and unfortunately, I think you only have to look at Germany. I mean, there was very interesting news during the week about Volkswagen, that Volkswagen are talking about job losses, they're talking about pay cuts, but they're also talking about job creation because they're repositioning the business. They're looking for greater productivity. They're focusing away from, say, diesel engines towards elect- electronic technology. But that's something that has been achieved in negotiation with the trade unions and with the local government. It's a unified approach to saying, look, we need to get this done. And I think the problem in Ireland is, do you have a government that has a strong enough mandate and strong enough votes mm. in the Dáil to drive that through? But
0: it's, but it's more of who's going to blink first. On. It's Pascal yeah. Donohue who's been tra- sticking to the line. If, he's, if he said it once, he said it 30 times. It has to be done within the confines of the Lansdowne Road Agreement. Now, most people haven't read the Lansdowne Road Agreement, nor do they care what's in it because it doesn't apply to them. But... He has a point that he has to toe the line and and Jack O'Connor's actions this week kind of really put it up to him to Mm. say, well, if you don't do what we want, my friend, Mm. the 60,000 people will be on strike in the new year. And that's not a that's kind of a blunderbuss approach to to um, industrial relations.
2: And, you know, the thing about the lands and road agreement, interestingly, is that that does provide, uh, you know, mechanisms in there to work towards pay restoration. Uh, so, you know, you know it, it seems to be that, that some of the flashpoints that are coming up, particularly around the guards and the teachers, is around this idea of equal pay for equal work. And it, it, this is, in a sense, uh, reaping what, what was sown back in 2008 and 2009, where a decision was made at the time that rather than having a, a greater pay cut across the board, uh, there was a, a, a pay cut across the board and then... And an even higher pay cut for people who were new entrants, um, which at the time people were happy to take the job because it was hard to get a job, and so if they were earning a bit less than somebody else doing a similar job, they they got on with it. But of course, you know, people are only going to be happy to do that for so long, and so uh, that idea of new entrants being brought up to parity with their colleagues in in, in the the and uh, among the teachers uh, it seems to be one of the things driving demands that go beyond Lansdowne Road. See the, yeah. And as soon as you go beyond Lansdowne Road, you're in. You're well, in I, I
0: I think, and I put this point to the unions during the week, and I did and getting a very good response if Pascal who's clever he'll turn around and say Do you know what you're dead right on those new entrants now, that's wrong we, shouldn't, we should not work towards restoring that but that's all I can afford mm. right now and see where the moral ground is after that because I think that restoration for those young people is probably the most important thing but that's not what, arguably what the unions want in its entirety mm. they want all the money back
1: Yeah I think so and I think again it's the whole reality of the situation in that you have it's like opening the door What comes through the door next? And you have unions positioning themselves to try and get an extra, whether it's pay restoration for for younger entrants, whether it's, you know, FEMP payments, whether it's all these things that unions lost. But the reality is it's against the backdrop of a health service that is creaking at the seams. I mean, we're not in the peak winter season yet. Mm. And already we've had record numbers on trolleys in Galway, Limerick, Cork, Dublin, and you know you have nurses and doctors saying that physically they're at breaking point, yeah. and you have people screaming for extra resources, extra acute beds you know, it's, it's the old argument against pay against services. I mean, can you afford both? And I don't think we can.
0: One of the other things that seems to have emerged in the papers this morning, Gina, and we blame the Americans for this. Oh, um, thank y- you very you've, much. You've given us so many beautiful things I'm over the so years. I'm so happy to <laughs> be
3: representing. Uh, and
0: now you have frightened the living daylights out of our established political parties. Uh, Simon Coveney, the minister who will be here in the next hour, has been warning of the rise of left-wing populism in Ireland. There has been a rise in the politics of street protests and there has been a rise in small political parties and movements that spend most of their week thinking about what they're going to organise for the next protest. Now, that's kind of a corollary. What's happened in the states is that a small little grassroots movement, all of a sudden, elected Donald Trump. You frightened our horses.
3: Gina. Well, I think I think Brexit frightened the horses before, and I think Poland and Hungary have frightened the horses, and I mm. think what's going on in France frightens the horses. I think, mm. The uh, Economist this this week has a very startling image on its cover of. Putin and Trump and Lafarge, interestingly, posing as those uh, Revolutionary War icons in the painting of the of the three of them coming up the hill with the, with the little fife and the drum and, and that whole iconic thing of the new nationalism and what's going on with this inward looking and what is it meaning for protests and for these fringe groups. And it is frightening and it is startling. And I think it is something that we all need to be very vigilant about as we're looking, not to segue over to the states here, but as we're looking at what the administration transition team and the types of people, these outliers that Trump is appointing or are, are putting forward as the appointments for his, his first round of advisors. Well, it is startling. We're
0: going to listen back to one of them in just a few minutes' yep. time. But but the other side of it in this article is that this secret briefing that Michal Martin and, and, and Dekhani had, the rise of militants <laughs> in the public sector. Are they militants or are they representing the perhaps... A groundswell of opinion—it it's, it's, it can't it, be ignored. It, it yeah. cannot be ignored. It, it, there may be strong-willed individuals. That doesn't yeah. mean they're militant. No, know, I, I
1: think it depends on your, your your point of view. I mean, from from workers' point of view, these are people that are representing genuine grievances yeah. and demands. From the government's point of view, it's easy to kind of paint them as militants because that means we'll look at something we have to be very wary of it's something we have to oppose so I think the language is interesting you know I mean I did, yeah, so it I certainly does reflect the, I mean you only have to look at the water charges issue to see which is coming back this it way is to fight it, them in the backside yeah, it absolutely is there I mean it has shown The power of street protest, I think particularly when you're in a political situation where you may not have a government that has the votes or the numbers to make a very unpopular stance.
0: I think we can all agree that the the upshot of this is that sometime early in the new year, government is going to sit down with the trade unions. And is is it better to pull the plaster off now and say it's going to happen rather than stick to the line that nobody believes anymore that Lansdowne Road is the only game in town?
2: It's hard to say, Jonathan. I mean, I think, you know, in any negotiating process, obviously both sides are going to, to keep their cards close to their chest. And so the government are going to be saying what they're saying now. You know, Pascal Donohue, as you say, has repeatedly said that this is the only show in town. The Trade unions are saying the opposite. Uh, you know, very often what we see is they meet somewhere in the middle. Um, but I think you're right that, that 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 process of sitting down and negotiating is inevitable. But I mean, on that, that, that phrase militancy, I, I, I'm i inclined to think that's a bit of a sensationalist story. You know, I think what, what one person's militant is another person's advocate, you you know, so I think, uh, you know, militancy might mean little more than people who are,
0: are, are arguing strongly or shouting loudly I, in that I'm context. sure there are some trade union activists who choked on their lattes this morning reading that headline <laughs> on the front page of the Sunday Independent. We'll talk about Donald Trump and who he's picking to populate his inner circle next. There's been lots of talk this week about the role of Stephen Bannon in Donald Trump's new administration. Now, we haven't heard much from the man himself because he's bunkered down in Trump Tower, which presumably is, is luxurious and everything like that. But he is preparing for power, which is in many ways quite alarming. Five years ago, he gave an interview to us here on News Talk uh, to my former colleague on News Talk Lunchtime, Damien Kybert. Now, this was on the back of the rise of the Tea Party at the time, which we had dismissed as a kind of a little quirk that we could all laugh at. But it was on the deal on the back of the U.S. debt ceiling crisis before Mitt Romney would eventually become the nominee for the election the following year and before Donald Trump was anything more than a guy with blonde hair who appeared on The Apprentice. So here is Stephen Bannon talking to Talk Lunchtime back in August of 2011.
4: We have socialism in the United States for the very wealthy and for the very poor. And we have a brutal form of capitalism for everybody else. And that's not fair. And I think that that's what the genesis of the Tea Party is. And and it's quite interesting. The Tea Party movement in the United States is made up, a big portion of it, is that kind of Scotch-Irish heritage that is in the middle of the country, in the South and in the West, that has really been the backbone of the... uh,
5: Scotch-Irish. And you're presumably called after the Boston Tea Party, are
4: you? Yes, that's yeah. that's exactly. But what But you're, you're
5: in that context. You have succeeded in stopping Obama dead in his tracks. He didn't get away with any tax increases whatsoever. Is that right?
4: Ta- yes, I, I think not just that. No tax increases, and I think all his, um, I think Obamacare has been shattered. Now, I think all the aspects of his desires to try to expand the scale and scope of the federal government has been stopped in his tracks. But it should not be looked at. Just to put it in perspective the federal budget in the United States will spend about $7.4 trillion in the next two years. And the only cuts that the politicians agreed to were $60 billion in cuts, and those cuts were really kind of marginal. So the political class does not have the will in the United States now to actually make these cuts. But we'll see changes in that as the Tea Party continues to grow in power.
5: Will we see an actual Tea Party candidate for president next time out?
4: You will, and it will be the Republican nominee. I don't think there's any doubt, as I view this and spend time out making these films about the Tea Party, is that I believe I don't see how a Republican nominee can really win the nomination without Tea Party support. So I think that the type of uh, what we call the insurgent candidates over here—Congressman Bachman, Herman Cain, Governor Perry, potentially Governor Palin, potentially. One of those candidates, I think, will be the, uh, it will not be an establishment candidate, someone like a Mitt Romney or a John Huntsman or a uh, Tim uh, Pawlenty. Uh, I think it will be a insurgent candidate backed by the Tea Party will be the Republican
5: An candidate. insurgent. Uh, Steve Bannon, the candidate that's uh, exciting, the greatest amount of attention at the moment here, at this side of the Atlantic, is uh, Michelle Bachmann, and uh, she's been portrayed as a, a, a really powerful figure, you know, with great organizational capacity, but she, there's also people are quite scared of her because they think she's homophobic and uh, borderline fascist in, uh, in some of her instincts. What would you say to those people?
4: Well, I, ma- I made a film, before I made the film on Governor Palin, I made a film on Congressman Bachman called Fire from the Heartland about Congressman Bachman and really the women of the Tea Party movement. Remember, the Tea Party movement was really started and driven by working class women. Blue collar women and middle class women. And that's one of the reasons that the establishment fears it so much because it's the first political movement in the United States, center right, driven by women. Congressman Bachman was a perfect example of kind of a Tea Party leader in the United States. And she's a real firebrand. I would compare her to someone like a Patrick Henry or a Thomas Paine. She was a, a very inspirational leader of the Tea Party in the last uh, election. But she's actually very smart. One of the reasons I wanted to make the movie is she has an advanced degree. From the College of William and Mary in tax law. So, this woman has enormous intelligence. And of course, the media mocks her because they fear her. But she's far from a fascist. She's actually a very strict constructionalist, as we call it, towards the Constitution.
5: So, we could see uh, President Bachman before long, you think?
4: I think uh, Congressman Bachman is going to be a very strong candidate. I think it shows you. What I think people in Ireland ought to think about is that you wouldn't have had these people like Congressman Bachman or Governor Palin. Even come on the radar scope unless you had the Tea Party movement, and, and it shows you that the movement is generating leaders that bring fresh perspectives to our country's problems. Remember, the Tea Party movement, no matter how the mainstream media portrays it, and particularly in Europe, is really working class people. It's it's working class people, it's lower middle class, and that's why it's derided and mocked by the media elites. The establishment that we have today in the United States is is, is fears. The Tea Party movement and it mocks its spiritual leaders like Congressman Bachman and Governor Palin as being idiots, morons, um, and Hicks, Hicks, you know, rubes, you know, pit, pit, you know, the, the peasants with the pitchforks. But those are the people that, as uh, Rick Santelli, who you know gave that rant in the Chicago uh, pits, that really started the Tea Party movement. It's those who carry the water versus those who drink the water, and it's time for those people that really, you know. Pay the taxes and work as hard as they do. You know, have to have a voice in how this money is spent. These deficits just can't continue forever. And unfortunately, in a, in a country like Ireland, you're seeing actually in a uh, in a much uh, uh, you know it's what the United States will end up becoming. I mean, the United States basically today has a federal budget of about 3.7 trillion dollars, and we take in about. trillion in in revenues from taxes, all sources. So there's a gap there on an annual basis. Given President Obama and Congress's spending, there's a gap of about $1.5 to $1.7 trillion. And by the way, that number's always missed. The deficits are always much higher. Well, a large portion of that money has to be borrowed. The United States has to borrow that money, and quite frankly right now it's borrowing it or selling its Treasury notes and Treasury securities to foreign countries, particularly to China, who's buying a lot of this. And I think one of the problems and one of the issues we've got in the United States, the reason we have $14 trillion in debt, is that it's been taken as a routine. The political class in the United States has really, under the dark of night over the you know, last 10 or 15 years, continued to raise the national debt and really not make it a, an issue. And I think the Tea Party made this an issue really for the first time and got people to focus on it. About how it's leading to the economic demise of the United States.
5: Really? Uh, is this the end of, of uh, America as the, the global economic power then?
4: I, I, I'll be brutally frank with you. I think that's why the rise of the Tea Party is coming about. Unless we stop this deficit spending, unless we stop the out of control federal government in Washington, D.C., from continuing to spend our children's uh, inheritance, uh, the United States is, is going to be severely damaged as an economic power. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You see that right now we're entering into, I think, a second dip recession. Um, What politicians, you have to remember, do, and they do it in Ireland, they do it at the EU all the time, they do it in the United States. They put out numbers, and then they come back two quarters later or a quarter later and recast those as actuals. If you look at the United States today, we've just had the real results of the first two quarters in the United States, and it shows, I think, 0.3% growth in the first quarter and 1.2% growth in the second quarter, which, as you know, is is really not sustainable economic growth, and so it looks like we're going into a uh, into a second dip recession over here, and that's after President Obama spent almost one trillion dollars in a stimulus pack, in a Keynesian stimulus package, at the beginning of his administration. So, it's not that any of these discussions are pleasant. You know, I keep telling people that all the easy decisions are ten years in back of us. Everything we have today. You know, no one really wants to make these cuts. These cuts are going to be quite unpopular and very unpleasant. I think Ireland's in the same situation. After you build up a welfare state or a nanny state, to have to pare it back is always, you know, very, very difficult.
0: Steve Bannon speaking to Damien Kuypert. Good to hear Damian's voice again. They're back in 2011. And look, it's prescient what he said, and we may have dismissed it at the time, but OK, he got some things wrong, like Michelle Bachmann going to be the nominee. But I don't see how a Republican nominee can win the nomination without Tea Party support. It will be what we call an insurgent candidate. He hadn't thought of Donald Trump at the time, but didn't he
3: fit the bill? Hey, it was it was prophetic in many ways. I mean, that was him talking about, if you talk about the Tea Party as social conservatives, people, as he said, that were considered themselves left out by this corporate cronyism, if you want to call it that. He he tapped on it. Now, I would take a little bit of odds at his premise that it's largely made up by um, Irish Scots since only 1.5% of the population in the U.S. identifies themselves as Scots, Irish, and about 10% claim U.S.-Irish ancestry. But anyway, if you've got 59% men... 89% white, 41% women white, that's the Tea Party. That's largely who elected Donald Trump. So absolutely, he he does raise a lot of issues. And frankly, Jonathan, I'm from one of those hick states. I grew up in... <laughs> by your own Indiana. By definition. my own, Indiana, my own definition. It? I grew up in Mike Pence's Indiana. And I was saying during the break that I was on the phone with a buddy of mine who was the senior class president of my small high school called Farmland, Indiana was the town. And I said to my senior class vice president, who now is one of the only remaining independent hog farmers in Indiana, I said, what, what made you vote for Trump? And he said, you know, it is, I am so tired of this global corporate takeover of everything that we once held, held dear. The number one hog farmer in the state of Indiana today is the Mitsubishi Car Company. Fan. The car company? The car company. What do they know about pigs? I, I don't <laughs> know.
0: <laughs> no, That's have, his point. Bannon made the point, we have socialism in the United States for the very wealthy and the very poor, and we mm. have a brutal form of capitalism for everybody else. Yeah. That, someone like this was easily dismissed because they were a crank. They were mm. someone on the yeah. extreme, but... He is a very clever guy. Just just from the tone of the interview, he was a clever guy who's tapped into something, Ralph, that's very, very real in the likes of Farmland, Indiana, and everywhere else. Yeah, Yeah.
1: no, he had and and he had his finger on the pulse of a part of America that that was ignored. There's no point saying it wasn't ignored. It was ignored by I think the hierarchy of both parties. I mean you only have to look at the states that went Republican. I mean Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio. I mean they're traditional blue collar democratic states but I mean there's been some phenomena. I mean RT did great stuff, I mean News Talk did great stuff, the BBC in particular did great stuff behind the scenes in some of these states. I remember seeing um, you know stuff done in Youngstown, Johnstown in Pennsylvania and the poverty the deprivation, the heroin addiction. I mean, they're, they're communities that almost rank as third world. And did the Democrats zone them out? Did they just go, we
0: don't care about these places because we know we can trust the coast and we can trust in a certain section of the blue wall that are going to get us over? And and as a result, they missed, they missed this groundswell and they missed the Trump and Bannon, et al., and Breitbart and all these managed to tap into it, Gina?
3: well, I think in a way, yes. I think there's obviously more, it's more complex than that. It's cyclical. It's not often that you're going to get 12 years of the same party in the United States. So you're coming on the heels of eight years of one party. And then can you get another Democrat four years? And of course, then we've got the 70% dislike factor of Hillary Clinton going on top of all of that. But yes, in the sense that they didn't message in a simplistic, emotional way to they, well, who they considered to be their solid base in those, in those blue collar states, they missed the mark on that, and they actually were shaking their heads as to why is Trump going there? Right. Those are our strongholds. Why is he ending his campaign in Ann Arbor, Michigan? That makes no sense. We're going to take that, and that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, he was talking, Bannon, there, uh,
0: Connor, uh, Connor of UCC, about uh, what is a strict constructionist of the Constitution. Now, the U.S. Constitution is a particular document. Mm-hmm. It was drafted yep. what in seventeen odd, and what is even by strict constructionist in that context? He was talking about Michelle Bachman, I think.
2: Yeah, uh, so the, the idea there, and the, I mean, Michelle Bachman would be representative of many Republicans in that regard, is uh, that there's a sense among uh, conservatives in the US that the Supreme Court over the years has run away with itself, that uh, it has taken the Constitution to places that it was never intended to go. So, for example, Roe v. Wade would be the poster mm-hmm. child in that argument oh, that, you know, Roe v. Wade was based on a constitutional right to privacy, but of course the Constitution doesn't say anything about the right to privacy anyway in the text and so they're saying the court just, just made that up and read it in and, and uh, that that was anti-democratic because it departed from what was originally understood by the constitution in the 1700s similar uh, comments were made last year when the Supreme Court ruled in favour of marriage equality and I could give you many
0: other yeah, examples you, you can make the same you know, argument here that in 1937 when we introduced Bunrock and hmm. the woman should have been tied to the sink and peeling the spud. Yeah, and that's still there that, that's I, not but, relevant but, to but today see,
2: But aside from that Jonathan it's also a fiction in any event because some of the the uh decisions that conservatives uh, cherish most in the US context. For example, uh, the Citizens United decision on campaign finance uh, you know it, it took an interpretation of the right to free speech basically applying to huge corporate donations made by by, by companies, which was never originally understood in, in the late 1700s. Even the, the gun control issue, the Heller decision on the individual right to bear arms, takes a provision which was about well-regulated militias uh, on the frontier defending homesteads yeah. and converts that to being able to, to have an assault rifle in your house. Yeah. So, you know, so, so it's, it's selective at best.
0: What we're looking at now, and, and this is arguably a dangerous period, that, that we, we saw yesterday that Donald Trump settled the Trump University story which meant that he paid out to all the people who were Swiss yes. and who had gone to Trump University and, and, and had lost money and and he said he was never going I'm never going to settle it I don't believe in settlements and he settled it and, 25 and
3: million later 25 million later
0: uh, which was something again a complete reversal of what he said mm-hmm. when he was talking to the American electorate and, and what was the commentary about yesterday? The commentary was about Mike Pence getting booed um, by, by, by some group of small people in the audience at the Hamilton mm-hmm. Theatre when the Hamilton people People on the stage were actually making a very prescient message. Trump tweeted about that, blew Trump University out of the water. And, and we are entering, I would put to you, Ralph, a very dangerous phase here that we are beyond reality in terms of what is the topic of discussion versus what the reality is.
1: Yeah, I, I think what's going to be interesting about Trump is the, the, what's said and what's done. And I just get the sense that there's a level of pragmatism about Trump that I think people have understated. And I would read an awful lot into the meeting with Mitt Romney yesterday. I think that that Trump is, he has some of the ideologues brought in, we've heard Steve Bannon, there. I think there's Senator um, Sessions has been mm, brought in. He's to say the least. he's a very he's a serious player. He's probably the biggest <laughs> no, yeah, concession to the right wing. No, no, but the I think other if you guys look at would
0: have been next near your average Republican candidates team. They would have said, "I'm." You've said th- silly things about Jews. You've said silly things yeah. about white supremacy. Yeah. We're not having you next near an
2: administration. pointing he, appointing loyalists, Jonathan. This is the thing. You know that, yeah. that the family, people, for the God people God so. who stood yeah. with him during the campaign are the people who were being appointed. And I'm skeptical, I must say, about how Many of the establishment Republicans are going to be brought into this administration. You know, if you look at, uh, we mentioned there Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, who mm. opposes all immigration, legal and illegal. Uh, you have Michael Flynn, the National Security Advisor, who's on the record, a, a former general, on the record as saying Islam is not a religion, it's, it's a political ideology, which yeah. is just a ludicrous notion.
1: I think Secretary of State's going to be interesting. I think who he appoints to that is going to really point the finger towards where the administration will go because I think if he's going to be pragmatic and if he's going to try and make a concession.
0: We know that um, Reince Priebus is going to be the, the, the he's effectively the go-between between Congress and yeah. um, a, a, and the White House. But, but Bannon is Bannon going to be more influential do you think Gina mm-hmm. on Trump? We heard what he thinks about the Tea Party it's a movement and he's the real brains behind the policy there. If he's in Trump's ear regardless of whether Trump is the best businessman in the world uh, That's a level of influence that no one else could get and is potentially how it's going to go, how he is going to uh, construct his policies.
3: Well, you hit the nail on the head about what's the reality behind the titles. If you've got the chief of staff as Ryan Priebus, that's one thing. But as you mentioned, Steve Bannon was with Day to day, Trump on the campaign after he became the chairman of his campaign. And so they've got a deeper relationship in many ways. And again, you also touched on Jared Kushner, the son in law mm-hmm. of Donald Trump. And what's that going to be? And how is that relationship going to play out? And I'd like to go back to something that Ralph mentioned, because I think a little bit of the skepticism that Connor mentioned, I share in the sense that what do we take from that meeting yesterday at the golf club up in New Jersey that Trump owns with his former, you know, they were. Vitriolic against one another during the campaign, and then Romney came out and he said a few things about we were talking about global affairs and that, and people were thinking, oh, maybe he might be the next Secretary of State, or was he brought in to kiss the ring, or was there posturing going on, and was there a little bit? Of, we didn't see Trump come out and say anything after their meeting for an hour and a half, and so I wonder what happened. What are the things and what it meant? Yeah,
0: well, I think we all do. <laughs> we we'll wonder be wondering for the next four years what happened and what it meant. But one of the things that uh, very basic level, uh, if any American if any politician assumes political office, they park their business interests. they say, I am now doing a different job on behalf of the people uh, who elected me mm. and my business affairs are being run by somebody else, which is traditionally done by a blind trust mm. uh, in other words, you don't have any control over it you don't even... Yeah, and they don't
3: tweet the way they do at 9 o'clock in the morning after their yeah. vice presidential and, and running mate gets booed on the... what's happened here the, is he said, well I'm going to get my kids, my kids are
0: going yeah. to do it. Yeah. His yeah.
3: kids are peppered throughout the process. It's his daughter and His daughter or his daughter-in-law is on on, on the transition team? And his His daughter went with his son-in-law to the meeting with the the Japanese uh, government official. I mean, there are so many, right, there are so many uncharted things that are happening here. Mm. But I think it's very important as the other two panelists were saying that it's, We've got to think about the narrative. we got to get out of the ivory towers and we got to get down to the reality. Just like you touched on at the opening there, Jonathan, that the, the Trump University thing, which is a big deal. We almost were going to have a president taking the oath of office while a trial was going on. I mean, unheard of types of things. It makes Watergate look pale. Yeah, like, and it's not I being mean, discussed. I mean, well, and not being discussed—that's it. We got to get down to that yeah. level and make things real, Connor. Well, I think the thing about Bannon,
2: though, there's been a lot of caricature—you know—caricatures drawn of Bannon, and you know, rightly so in some ways because he seems like a, a, a person with some very unpleasant views, uh, but he also is somebody who seems to have put his finger on something and Democrats are going to have to take him seriously. I mean, if, if they want to get Trump out of the White House, they're going to have to try and figure out how he got in there in the first place. And Bannon gave this fascinating interview during the week to the Hollywood Reporter and he says, if we get this right, we can govern for 50 years. And, you know, I think you, well, you look that's look at that. Good. That's, well, that's yeah. not good. Kind of,
0: that's the kind of thing Putin sat back but, uh, but on but when, the, but, Bo- when Yeltsin went, you know, you know, I could yeah. do this for I 50, 50 the, years. But I think the point
2: I'm making is that Democrats, I think, there's a danger they're going to look at this and they'll think, oh, Trump's going to fail. Spectacularly. Yeah. Assumption that I the election a, was, no, was a fluke, be, that yeah. he's going to go in there, that he's not going to keep any of his promises That he's going to fall flat on his face and they'll march back mm. in in four years. And if they fall into that trap, then they're in big, big trouble. Anyway, there's plenty of hair discussion
0: hair. inside the newspapers uh, about Trump and what he's done and what's going to happen next. I don't think any of it is very insightful because we really don't have a clue what's going to happen next, which will make, you know, the way we all say 2016 has been a terrible year. I, why do I fear for 2017? <laughs> why do I fear? Anyway, this is Jonathan Healy on The Sunday Show. We'll come back with more in the newspapers, including that story uh, about the guy, the commissioner, being hacked. This is The Sunday Show, and our panel going through the papers this morning, we have Conor Romani of UCC, Gina London and Ralph Regal. Ralph, you're wearing a tie, and you showed me the back of the tie. Tell, tell the other people where the tie is from.
1: Uh, I wore this specially today because I knew this topic was going to come up, but I'm actually wearing my genuine, 100% correct Donald J. Trump signature collection
3: type. Wow, that's a collector's <laughs> it item it right just? there, isn't it? it is
1: actually, the interesting thing about it, it was, a, that on it was from Macy's in the States, but <laughs> the interesting thing about it was the entire Donald J. Trump collection in Macy's was dropped. That's right. Once he passed the comments about the, the Mexicans. Yeah, exactly right. Because that made a huge difference when yeah. it
0: happened. Yeah. Let's go to the front of the Sunday Times. Um, it, it's a story by John Mooney that is uh, not going to be a welcome read by the the Commissioner, Norina Sullivan. Uh, it's about her using a private email account to send and receive official correspondence uh, in what John Mooney says is apparent contravention of Garda regulations on communication security. They, Norina Sullivan it's fair to say she's been embattled with the various yeah. different things going on. She doesn't need this. No,
1: I mean, at the very, very minimum, this is hugely embarrassing, um, particularly given the fact that um, one of her prior responsibilities was counterintelligence within the Garda Síochána. So it's 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 one that we're going to hear an awful lot more about.
0: And and the point is, like it, it says the username and password were included on a list of stolen data posted on the internet by hackers. It's not known whether the Garda Commissioner updated her password in August when Dropbox confirmed the theft now a lot of people use Dropbox and this is when hackers attacked Dropbox in 2012 I, I, I'm not a huge fan of Dropbox but I suppose it, the commissioners fallen foul like everyone else did but it, it, it is worrying Connor
2: well, it is. I mean, I think from her point of view, the timing is rather unfortunate. Obviously, there's a, a heightened public awareness of this particular issue after the Clinton um, fiasco during the election. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, Dropbox is something which has been under attack from hackers over the, over the last while. I know certainly within the university sector, uh, there is guidance being handed down around using um, these types of services for, for holding sensitive information. So, uh, you know, the kind of information a garlic Commissioner would be handling, obviously, is potentially much more sensitive. Yeah. So, as Ralph said, it's very embarrassing. I'd imagine
0: the the guy, the press office, will issue something on this later on, but it is something that uh, she's going to have to come back with. And look, it's internet security. We're all we're all guilty of this. I I was filling something in the other day, and I I realized. Well, I'm using the same password for about sixty different things. So if it's exposed once, mm. it's potentially exposed sixty times.
3: I think it's something that's going to hit every individual at at some point. I mean, these ideas of your security and you need to change your password every six months and you need to have so many numbers and you need to do this and that. It's very complicated. But of course, the bar is that much higher if you are in a very high secure and and sensitive situation or position. And so that's why, especially if you're a government official, you've got to get this right. You've got to take the time to get your digital yeah. security buttoned down.
0: Well, look, it's not quite at the level of Hillary Clinton by the not looks yet. of it, but certainly it is worth uh, it'll be worthy of a response from the commission. Well, and it's easy that, to message around later. this stuff, so this is yeah. the
3: kind of stuff you've got to be very careful about.
0: Okay, uh, let's talk about you, have the Sunday world. Uh, I uh, do. We were, I, when I, I saw this this morning, um, saw the front page online before I actually got my physical copy of the newspaper. And I thought it might have been Paul Kelly, you know, the way the mm. journalist types like us, Ralph, stop uh, people <laughs> passing Thanks by something. and get uh, one or two lines and make a story out of it. But it seems that, that Patrick O'Connell, who wrote the piece, has has got quite a substantial comment um, from Paul Kelly, the uh, former CEO of Console, who really had we haven't heard much from
1: yep. since the scandal broke. Yeah, no, it's a great story and a good old-fashioned doorstep, and there's there's some significant stuff in it which is actually very interesting. Where Paul Kelly did open up and refer to a couple of bits and pieces. I was talking to Connor earlier, and uh, my my favourite part of the the interview actually is as someone who was the owner of a 2002 Toyota Vitz, whose door was frozen solid this morning, and I had to boil the kettle just to get into it. And um, there's a <laughs> Put reference the kettle
0: to, in the car. Shit, there's No, <laughs> <'cause, laughs> lords, no stopping you.
1: There's a reference here to the famous uh, Audi Q5, which of course was one of the vehicles at the center of this whole console um, um, controversy And, and what Paul Kelly says here is quotes the car that I used was for business purposes and people forget that it was purely for business purposes and the car that we had within the organization was purely that it was very functional so I'd, I'd love to see the, the owners of Audi Q5s this morning saying that their cars, the cars are only are functional. functional. I would think it's significantly more than that.
0: Yeah, but he's, there will be more questions and no, no doubt a lot of people want to speak to Paul Kelly as well uh, outside of Patrick O'Connell. So they'll be reading that with interest. I have to finish up a talk about the match yesterday because, look, everybody knew mm. that the All Blacks were going into this with their eyes wide open. They weren't going to be caught no. twice. Uh, there was still a real valiant attempt by Ireland to overcome. Connor. I know you're, you're a big rugby yeah. fan. You were watching the game. I mean, the referee um, mm-hmm you know has a lot yeah, that, that, the, the TMO has a lot to answer for we, here we
2: just didn't get the rub of the green yesterday Jonathan I think you know we played pretty well uh, you know all the marginal things went in New Zealand's favour two tries which could have been looked at differently potentially a number of incidents of foul play certainly I think uh, my view on the Henshaw one a lot of people are, are quite exercised about that I thought that was a genuine accident Henshaw twisted into it a ah, very, but a very a funny axe, angle though. he got pole axe, but I think if Dane Coles or sorry Sam Kane if, if Sam Kane had actually tried to hit Henshaw on the head with the angle Henshaw was moving at it, we would have had a hard time but the one on Zebo later on was a swinging arm with intent I mean that was a red card and The, li- the, the linesman was bang on you know? next to it and yeah. it, it
0: should have been a red card and I, I wouldn't be
2: surprised to see a sighting and a ban come for that one after the event but that's no use to us now uh, but equally you've got to take your chances you know you can't depend on those things and you know we, we were held up over the line twice we dropped the ball on the line about four times you know the, the things that went right in Chicago didn't go right yesterday but I think what's pleasing is uh, that we are now consistently competing with these teams you know in the past if we if we ran New Zealand close one week we'd lose by 50 points the next mm. and now we seem to be going out three games in South Africa in the summer two games against
0: New Zealand in the autumn and it's a, it's a score either way every but time But of course it's going to lead to bitter crushing disappointment when we go to the Rugby World Cup and eventually we're going to meet New Zealand <laughs> <laughs> and in that form but we've got one thing is say we've got a form against New Zealand in the past three years mm. we can say that with a certain amount of confidence now in Chicago yeah. as well OK we leave it there thanks very much to our panel Conor O'Mahony lecturer in constitutional law at UCC Gina London public affairs correspondent at formerly of CNN, and Ralph Regal, correspondent with The Irish Independent, who does a lovely range of Donald Trump wear uh, which will be on sale on eBay, <laughs> on eBay. at the end on of eBay. the day. <laughs>